Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for January 18th, 2019. I'm Brian Cardile, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast covering important appellate and constitutional law cases and questions. We've got a great group of guests on today's episode, all here to help us unpack a pointed federal district court rebuke of the Trump administration certain to make its way up the appellate court ladder in the next weeks and months. The ruling you've likely read about blocks for now the government's plan to include on next year's census a question asking respondents about their citizenship. Challengers in the case, including the state of California, argued the government and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, who oversees the census, wanted to include the question for partisan and discriminatory reasons, namely to discourage non-citizens and their family members from returning their census cards, resulting in a dilution of their political representation and federal program benefits. Challengers say those most impacted would be minority communities that tend to vote less often for the political party of the president and secretary Ross. The government, though, says it has good reasons for asking about citizenship, namely to get better, more complete data about the U.S. population, and also to get granular enough information to effectively enforce the Voting Rights Act of 1965. On Monday, New York's Southern District Judge Jesse Furman, who's appointed by Barack Obama, but also a former counselor to the Attorney General in George W. Bush's Department of Justice, sided with the challengers, though not entirely. Furman withheld judgment on the claim that Ross and the government harbored discriminatory intent. Instead, the judge ruled on more mundane grounds, essentially that under the Administrative Procedure Act, the government hadn't shown its work, hadn't provided good faith, evidence-based reasons for its decision, and hadn't shown that its proffered justifications, for example, that Voting Rights Act basis, were genuine. It's an interesting ruling and a thorough one, 277 pages, in fact. So, brought in more guests than usual today. We're joined by election law and voting rights expert and Loyola Law School professor Justin Levitt. Also here from the Center for Immigration Studies Director of Research and Scholar of Public Policy Analysis, Stephen Camerata. And finally, we'll be joined by a former director of the Census Bureau and current commissioner of California's Citizens Redistricting Committee, Vince Baraba. Before hearing from our guests, though, let me remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available to listeners of the podcast. If you're out there tuning in and are in need of completing your CLE requirements, look no further than the dailyjournal.com site. After you listen to this program, you can find a short true-false test on our website, dailyjournal.com. Complete that, and one hour of credit can be yours. Also, plenty of other CLE options can be found at dailyjournal.com. You are finding that, and completing it is also tremendously appreciated because it helps us continue to publish this podcast outside of our usual paywall. And with that, let's get to our opening briefs. The U.S. Supreme Court heard oral argument in six matters this week. A technical one arose from the Ninth Circuit asking whether the Copyright Act's allowance of full costs to a prevailing party is limited to taxable costs or whether non-taxable costs are included. A notable takings matter was heard, too, examining a circuit split on whether facial takings claims, assertions that a law on its face affects an unconstitutional taking, may be brought without first matriculating through state courts. The Ninth Circuit and 3rd, 6th, and 10th hold that SCOTUS precedent does indeed bar such claims without state court review happening first. Two opinions rendered, one a unanimous ruling holding that truck drivers classified as independent contractors may not be compelled to arbitrate their claims under the Federal Arbitration Act. Section 1 of the Act excludes employment disputes brought by transportation workers, which the court decided applied to independent contractors and not only employees. 
and a criminal case saw a fascinating 5-4 split, one where Justice Breyer joined an otherwise conservative majority and where Chief Justice Roberts dissented with three liberal colleagues. The bare majority decided that a Florida robbery statute requires sufficient force to trigger the enhanced penalties of the Armed Career Criminal Act. And the court's Friday conference came and went without any new cert grants, leaving pending a couple prominent Ninth Circuit petitions involving the DACA program's rescission and a military transgender ban, both of which have now been distributed for conference twice. And in the Ninth Circuit, we saw today the first local impacts of the recently passed federal criminal justice reform bill, the First Step Act. The Ninth Circuit ordered remanded for consideration of resentencing, a case in which a drug defendant, Ira Vincent Spearman, received a mandatory life sentence in 1994. Spearman had been challenging that mandatory life term unsuccessfully over the intervening 25 years. Monday, though, in an interesting turnabout, a panel withdrew an earlier opinion granting habeas relief to a petitioner whose death sentence the California Supreme Court upheld in 1988. A year ago, a panel including the now late judges Stephen Reinhardt and Harry Pregerson had granted relief to the petitioner convicted for rape and murder of two women on ineffective assistance of counsel grounds. The new panel, though, comprising judges Nguyen, Wardlaw, and Milan Smith Jr., agreed the attorney's performance was deficient but not, however, prejudicial because such substantial evidence supported the verdict. A reversal Tuesday held that the Americans with Disabilities Act and California's analog requires restaurant tours like here, Domino's Pizza, to make sure its virtual facilities like website and mobile ordering apps are accessible to blind customers in the same way that physical facilities are. Also on Tuesday, a panel held that a law barring asylum to immigrants who provided material support for terrorist organizations entails no de minimis exception, even whereas here the petitioner gave the equivalent of just $50 and that under duress. Notably, Judge Bennett, a Trump appointee, wrote separately that the federal law doesn't clearly preclude such an exception. Nonetheless, Bennett deemed that the Board of Immigration Appeals, which also held against the petitioner, was entitled to Chevron deference. The California's Supreme Court agreed Wednesday to hear three matters, one a Ninth Circuit property title question, another involving employer liability for injuries suffered by an independent contractor's employees, and one habeas appeal challenging a board of parole hearings decision against a juvenile offender. And finally this week, California's 2nd District Court of Appeal Justice Jeffrey Johnson was formally charged by the Commission on Judicial Performance on sexual assault and misconduct grounds. CJP's explicit filing details claims made by 14 women, including a fellow justice who alleges Johnson groped her, and a member of Johnson's security detail who claims the judge pressured her for sex. Johnson, through his attorney Paul Meyer, denied the allegations, so stay tuned to the Daily Journal for the likely protracted and salacious dispute now set to unfold. Late Monday, the Southern District of New York issued a fairly blistering indictment of another immigration-related policy advanced by the Trump administration, the proposed addition of a citizenship question to next year's decennial census. We've got three great guests lined up to help us digest this voluminous decision. We'll hear first from Loyola Law School's Associate Dean for Research and Professor of Law Justin Levitt, who formerly worked on election law and voting rights issues in the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division. He joins us now. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. I'm happy to join. So there's a, a lot to uh, to this ruling. It's a, a nearly 300-page decision down from the Southern District of New York. But trying to cut kind of to the, the the central problem that the court had, 
with the government's intention here, intended addition of a citizenship question to the 2020 census. It seemed to me like the main problem was that the court thought the government wasn't really kind of showing its work or providing a, a good reason upon which it could justify adding that question to the census. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, I think I think the problem was, uh, as you put it, there's a requirement that agencies generally, whenever they act, A, do their homework, and B, show their homework. And in essence, the court thought the homework was pretty poor. It thought it was pretty poor for a bunch of reasons, including the fact that the court strongly suspected that the reasons given for the decision were pretextual. That is, part of the reason they didn't show their homework is they really weren't out to achieve what they said they were out to achieve. But even more than that, the court said, look, if I just look at the facts you did find, they don't support the action you took. And it sure seems like that's because the action you took wasn't designed to do what you said you were going after. And so the homework you did was pretty shoddy. Maybe that's because you never intended to actually do real homework to begin with. And that's a violation of essentially the Administrative Procedure Act. It also said separately, Congress has said that you get to ask questions of people on the census when it's absolutely necessary to ask them. But if you can get necessary information through a way other than asking them directly, if you can get it through administrative records or through surveys or through sampling, you have to do those other less burdensome things first. And the court said, you didn't show me why it's really necessary to ask everybody here. Again, that may be because you're not actually intending to get the information. You may have other interests in mind. But before you get to ask everybody in the country about their citizenship status, you have to show me that you couldn't get better information other ways. And from your homework, I don't see that you've done that. Can we back up just a second to is a fairly elementary question about administrative law. But why does the, the reason the government wants to add this question matter? If you stipulate, and I feel like I've asked this question a, a number of times in the last couple of years about certain actions taken by this administration, but if you stipulate that the Department of Commerce is in charge of the census and it can add or subtract questions under its discretion, why does it matter what reason they're adding a question for? Why, why does that reason matter? It's a great question, and it's one that really goes to the heart of administrative law overall, and that is Congress gets to make policy. Congress has decided that it would be useful for administrative agencies to do some of that work. That's part of the reason that Congress delegates discretion to begin with. But it only delegates that discretion because administrative agencies have some technical expertise, because they've got some practice, because they've got a logical structure to what they do. And Congress has essentially said, as long as we trust that an administrative agency is doing its job, is working through the pros and the cons and weighing the pros and the cons and using its expertise coming out with a final call, we're willing to give them lots of discretion. But it is only when an agency is actually using its expertise to come to a logical conclusion that we're willing to give that discretion. And so we're going to make sure that the agency actually lays out why it's doing what it's doing and shows the homework that it did to show that its final conclusion is justified. And if an agency doesn't do that, we're not willing to delegate to them our policy power. We're only doing this because we trust an agency is going to have a rational and considered decision-making process, and that's what we're putting trust in. So put differently, 
the entire basis for the administrative state is that Congress is willing to defer to some executive policymaking, but only insofar as it trusts the executive process. And Hmm. if the executive is just going to come in in an arbitrary way, Congress says, we're not willing to delegate you that power. So maybe unpull exactly what the government is saying as to why it's not acting in an arbitrary manner. It's just giving, as I read it, essentially kind of two different core bases upon which they they would like to include the citizenship question. One, um, according to Secretary Ross, being that it would return a, a more complete and also accurate count the accuracy then including the the number of citizens and non-citizens included in the census. And then another basis cited by the court and and mentioned by the Department of Justice, which the court believe regarded as sort of a post hoc rationalization, but that justification being that collecting the data in the census uh, in this manner would help enforce the Voting Rights Act. It would help guarantee that folks able to vote would not have that right potentially infringed. Why does the court not lend much credence to, to those proffered justifications. Yeah, so all of that is right. And, and it starts with DOJ's request, actually. So every year, the census checks in with agencies and says, hey, is there anything we could be asking about in all of our various surveys and, and the like? There's lots of information the census collects that isn't on the decennial enumeration. And agencies say, hey, it would be really helpful if we knew X or Y or Z. So the first motivating factor that the agency says, the reason it did this to decide to put a citizenship question on the decennial enumeration to add to the 10 basic questions you ask everybody in the country to add this extra question, are you a citizen or not? The reason it says it did it is because the Department of Justice asked for citizenship information ostensibly to help them enforce the Voting Rights Act. And they said, the best information we can get will be information that we collect in the decennial enumeration. So that's why we have to ask it there rather than the place where we've asked it for the last 50 years, which is on a survey, a rolling survey given to a small portion of people at a time that adds up to an estimate. An estimate, by the way, which has been accurate enough to enforce the Voting Rights Act for 50 years, for all of the time that the Voting Rights Act has been in, in existence the decennial enumeration hasn't had a question about citizenship on it since 1950. And the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965 has been enforced for its the entirety of its existence without a question about citizenship on the, the very short enumeration document that goes to everybody in the country. Commerce decided that it needed the information on the decennial to get sufficiently good information back to justice. The court, as you say, didn't buy it. The court didn't buy it for a lot of reasons. Number one, the Census Bureau's own internal records showed that there was real concern the information it would get would not be accurate. In fact, would be less accurate than collecting the information through other sources. So even on its own terms, the court said, you're telling me you're going to get better information using the enumeration, but your own people are telling you you're not, and you haven't shown me any data to indicate that they're wrong. So even if I take you at your word, your homework doesn't show that you're going to get better information doing what you've done. But also, I see from the record of this decision, from the documents that were put forward showing how you came to this decision, that you seem to have your mind made up well before the Department of Justice ever asked for this information. In fact, a couple months before Justice requested the information, you said, 
we want the citizenship question on the census, and we have to see whether we can get the Department of Justice to request it. So you've told me you were just reacting to something that justice wanted. It doesn't look like that was true. You've told me you're just doing this because it'll give you better information. It doesn't look like that's true. And because you haven't shown me enough homework to convince me that there's a good reason for doing this or that it's going to get you the better information you say you want, the Administrative Procedure Act stops you from doing it. Just to, to lay out the fairly obvious inference, the basis for a conclusion that including this question would return less accurate or less complete data is that a certain segment of the folks that get the census would not want to volunteer their uh, citizenship information to the government, right? And that would include yeah. folks that would potentially be citizens, right? But maybe it would have maybe one non-citizen living in their home or a relative or folks with maybe sort of in-between status or uh, you know, folks that are citizens or have some status. Oh, even more than that. And, and I think there are three things working together in conjunction. And, and you're absolutely right. The, the main thing is that people are scared. In the current environment, people are scared of the federal government. Non-citizens are scared both those who are lawfully present and those who are not lawfully present. Citizens are scared when they have members of their family who may be non-citizens. The federal government has also taken steps to denaturalize people who are citizens to take their naturalization away. And that has created a lot of fear in the community. But really, the fear, warranted or not, is, is really rampant through many minority communities, including those that just don't trust the federal government flat out. So, this impacts people who are non-citizens, people who know or live among non-citizens, or communities that are just scared of what the federal government might do flat out, whether they're citizens or not. And that's a huge swath of the population. Um, the Census Bureau was already reporting that people were reluctant to answer surveys on citizenship back in 2015 and 16 and 17. And it's just gotten much, much worse since. The last time the federal government asked about citizenship on the decennial census in 1950. About 80% of the public trusted the federal government to do what's right. The stats on that now are about 17%. And so it is a massively different climate. And so one fear is that, yeah, people won't, not only won't answer the question about whether they're a citizen or not, but won't answer the census at all that it's a scary thing to have a federal government representative come to your door and start asking questions. And in this climate, having a citizenship question on the census could keep the census from accurately telling the population flat out. The other thing that's adding to all of this is that it's a very different thing to ask a question about citizenship in the context of a 80-question, 40-minute survey delivered to a small percentage of the people and to ask it in the context of a 10-question survey delivered to every household in the country, that it's much more prominent when put on the decennial enumeration, the thing that comes sixth in the Constitution. It's the very first act that the federal government is given in the federal Constitution. It's before the power to make war. It's the, before the power to regulate commerce. It's the first thing the federal government is told to do is to take a census because that's the basis of representation and funding for all of the federal government. That asking the question in that context makes it far more prominent. And so even if people are scared to answer the question on a more invasive, uh, longer survey that's delivered to a portion of the population, they're going to be that much more scared to answer the question uh, or to answer any questions when it's one question of 10 delivered to every person in the country. 
the heart of the challengers claim here is essentially that the the government is aware of all that and and viewing it instead as a as a feature rather than a bug that the Department of Commerce and Secretary Ross perhaps intended for political reasons to discourage a certain segment of folks, particular minority communities, from returning the census, thereby sort of diluting their share in con- congressional apportionment and, and voting maps, and also um, diluting their a share of federal tax dollars. That that's the one big piece of of the claim here, right? Yeah, that is. If you're in a police procedural and somebody's looking for motive. That's basically the heart of the motive that the challengers have put forward, right? Why would the secretary have done this? Why would Commerce have done this? What's the reason for the pretext? That's what they said is the answer. It's important to realize that they don't have to prove that was the motive in order to successfully legally challenge the law. It's enough to challenge the law to just show that the homework was shoddy, even if there's not a full explanation of why. But you're absolutely right that the heart of what they think the motive was is is exactly this. I should point out that the redistributive consequences of getting the census wrong, of inaccurately counting the population, are A, huge, and B, may not be exactly what those in power intend. So first of all, we use the census not just for allocating political power and funding for the federal government. We use it for an, an enormous array of choices in private sector and in the public sector. Um, we use it for public health purposes. We use it for economic decisions. We use it to figure out where to put stores and outlets and where to put advertising dollars. Every time you hear a poll, the reason you know that you can rely on a poll of 500 people to tell you what 50,000 think is because it's calibrated to reasonably represent the population as a whole. And the calibration tool is the census. So all kinds of private choices get skewed when the census is skewed. Also, the states that are growing the fastest are growing the fastest because of immigrant populations. Those states stand to gain the most in congressional seats and in federal dollars. Those states are states like Texas and states like Florida. And if new immigrant populations in Texas and Florida are more scared to answer the citizenship question and more scared to answer the census at all because the citizenship question is on the census, then those seats and that funding vanish. Texas stands to lose three congressional seats that if there's an accurate count, they probably gain. Florida stands to lose two congressional seats that if there's an accurate count, they probably gain. That's billions of dollars come along with those seats. And if populations in Texas and Florida don't answer the census, if they're too scared to open their doors because there's a question about citizenship on there, those seats don't show up and those federal dollars vanish. And so I'm not convinced that those who think this is going to benefit them politically uh, actually understand all the ramifications of what happens next. That largely responds to the, the next question I would, would have for you. And that would be just sort of to pose what seems to me that sort of core counter argument that would be put forward by those supportive of the government's position here. That being that, as you say, the census tabulation is, is tied pretty directly to political representation in Congress and then federal tax dollars. But as to that political representation, if you know someone putting forward this argument says, well, look, the folks that, you know, stipulating that the, the motivation is to discourage responses from non-citizens, the argument goes, if those folks are discouraged, that's okay because largely they are unable to vote. And so if we're diluting their voting power, well, they sort of don't, in general, as a community, have that much voting power anyway. So the argument goes, so what's really the problem? Have you heard that argument? And what was your response? 
I've heard that argument, and the reason, and, and I understand that argument, it doesn't actually fit the history, and it doesn't fit the constitutional text. So every state, every state in the country right now makes redistricting decisions, makes apportionment decisions on the basis of the total population, everybody. And there's a really good reason for that. It's that the framers of the Constitution put a pretty sizable thumb on the scale to say that everybody gets represented, not only by state legislatures, but by federal legislatures, by Congress. It wasn't always thus. So uh, back at the original Constitution, as is notorious, slaveholding states got extra representation, but only by a portion of the individuals who were held as property. We fought a war over that. And after the Civil War, uh, it is abundantly clear that congressional seats are allocated based on the total number of people who live in the state, period. Whether they're citizens or non-citizens, whether they're young or old, whether they're voters or non-voters, because the framers of the 14th Amendment very deliberately intended that legislatures represent everyone. Even if everyone's not entitled to vote, legislatures represent everyone. And individuals who are too young to vote or who aren't citizens or who are otherwise disenfranchised still have to pay taxes. And they still have to abide by laws that the legislatures pass. And so we want to make sure that at least their voices are represented, even if they're not able to directly elect someone. So it's very much within not only the strict constitutional text, but our our hundred year constitutional history to make sure that everyone's counted. That's actually census's job one. And part of what the challengers posed in this case, the court didn't accept it as a reason to hold against them, but, but there are other cases in California and in Maryland that are going forward on this basis. The census's job one is to enumerate the total population. That is about as plain as can be. And the argument goes, the Census Bureau can't take a step to get other information that's nice to have if it would mean that they jeopardize the total enumeration they're required constitutionally to have. Uh, just to put a bow on that, we sh- should make clear, as, as you did, that the court in this ruling did not say the secretary or the, the government is, is acting with that discriminatory motive. It just uh, held against them on that Administrative Procedure Act ground, not this constitutional ground. That sort of that question could potentially come up again, though, I assume if this uh, case is, a, is appealed, which seems likely. And also the Supreme Court has also granted, I think, a portion of this case as to whether or not the secretary could really be asked his true motivations. Is that all right? Mm-hmm. It's all correct. There is This case is in a really weird procedural posture. So as I mentioned, it's one of six cases across the country. There are, there are two joint cases in New York. There are two others in California, two others in Maryland. There's another tag-along case that's somewhat different that's, that's operating in conjunction. The court was very careful and very thorough and used a lot of care and attention in writing 277 pages worth of opinion, found only on the statutory claims, thought that that, those were the only claims that were necessary. At the same time, there's going to be an argument in just about a month in the Supreme Court that came out of an earlier phase of this case. That argument had to do with when you're testing things under the Administrative Procedure Act, that act essentially says, you got to show me your homework. Is it ever proper to assess the validity of agency acts, not using the homework they put forward, but using other evidence, like other evidence of pretext or other evidence of discriminatory intent? The Supreme Court granted cert on that. It'll hear that in February. But the judge 
knew all of this and the trial court in its opinion very carefully said, look, I'm going to give you an answer using the homework they put forward. I'm going to give you an answer that only uses the homework they put forward. P.S. Not good enough. And then I'm also going to bring in, just in case it's okay, this other information, but it's not necessary to my opinion. It just bolsters the fact that when I said I think they didn't put forward their homework, I was right. But the court anticipated the argument the Supreme Court would be having. And so now there's an open question about whether the Supreme Court case is even really necessary. The trial court was very clear that he was going to issue a decision, a decision without getting into the extra record evidence on pretext or discrimination. He issued that decision, and it stands on its own. And so there's a question about whether the Supreme Court case about when it's appropriate to use extra record evidence kind of doesn't matter anymore. That may be my last one in, in terms of a potential path forward for this case to the Supreme Court, even if that uh, portion of it is, is unnecessary for the holding here. It does seem likely the government will try to appeal this ruling. Uh, do you think that those 277 pages that, that seem pretty uh, intentionally sort of buttressed and, and reinforced to survive a good amount of review, do you think it it could hold up in the Supreme Court? It seems uh, you know we certainly had cases go to the high court involving executive power and limits on it, like, for instance, the, the travel ban most notably. Um, what are your thoughts on the potential path forward here for this case? Well, so you're right. There's, uh, I'll put it even stronger. There's absolutely no question it's going to be appealed. Um, there's no question that they will seek appellate review actually in a couple different ways. They might seek direct review of the merits. They might also seek a stay from both the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, if they haven't already, and the Supreme Court. This case is notable. So earlier in this case, um, the judge actually got quite ticked off. The government tried 14 different times to stay aspects of this case. And the one application for stay is not unusual, and two is not unusual. Going back and forth 14 different times to try and forestall an answer really made the government look desperate to avoid a ruling in this case. And the court got increasingly ticked off. You don't see that frustration in the court's opinion. I think the opinion is extremely thorough and extremely careful and extremely well-reasoned. It is designed to be insulated from, from easy appellate review. There, there, are no, there are no clear mistakes in that. Whether it will be upheld or not, whether the Supreme Court will step in and stay the ruling even without getting to the merits, there are nine people who know the answer to that, and I'm not one of them. So there's absolutely no question the government will try and seek review. There's a deadline on this case. The Census Bureau has to know one way or another by June what questions are going to be asked so that it can start printing forms and so that it can start training census takers. And so whatever happens, we'll have an answer within a few months. The The court was exceedingly careful, and I think as I've evaluated it, so, so obviously I have a perspective on this case. I happen to sit in the chair of the individual who said that citizenship data was absolutely necessary to enforce the Voting Rights Act, and neither I nor uh, any of the people over the, the 50 years prior who had sat in that same chair thought that it would be necessary. In fact, the Census Bureau itself said, we're not going to ask for this information because we worry that it would actually jeopardize the accuracy of the information we get. So for decades, there had been real consciousness not to ask this question in this way because we thought the answer would be uh, not very useful. So I, I certainly have a perspective on whether the Census Bureau should have asked for the information or not. But even setting that aside, the trial court's opinion was exceedingly 
careful, and I think a fair-minded appellate court would would find strength in the reasoning and uphold it. That doesn't mean I know what the courts are going to do. And and like I said, unless you're one of nine people, you probably don't know either. Well, it'll certainly be interesting to find out uh, how this case develops. We'll, we'll leave it there for now. Professor Justin Levitt, thanks very much for sharing your thoughts on the on the case. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me on, Brian. Stephen Camerata is the Center for Immigration Studies Director of Research. He's a doctorate in public policy research and is here to provide a contrasting view on the ruling and the government's wish to inquire after citizenship on the census next year. Glad to have him on. Stephen, welcome in. Thanks for having me. What were your initial impressions uh, of this ruling down late Monday, this very voluminous district court decision? Yeah, I have looked through it, but I have to confess I haven't read the whole thing. It doesn't. It seems like the judge had a pretty strong dislike of this idea, and uh, he spilled forth all the reasons why he, he didn't like it, and he, I take it, seems to have ignored the reasons that the Census Bureau or the, the Department of Commerce had stated for doing it. And I think it would be fair to say, and maybe he's right, that um, uh, you know he's essentially substituting his own judgment for that of the Department of Commerce. Interestingly, or maybe not interestingly, I, I suppose, is he doesn't really say that that it, it was of a discriminatory nature. Essentially, the argument here is that to add a census question uh, on citizenship back into the census is arbitrary and capricious. And then he went on to say, see, we, we you know, should have used administrative data. He didn't think about this long enough. It doesn't seem justified in the judge's mind. And so the judge kind of just goes on at length uh, about that. Sure. Let me push back a little bit. It, it um, You say the judge sort of ignored the reasons put forward by the Department of Justice, namely the, the principal justification for the inclusion of this question that it would help enforce the Voting Rights Act. But in the ruling, it doesn't seem like he ignored it so much as, as say, look, this is, in my view, a pretty clearly post hoc rationale put together after the idea was already hatched for, you know, some other reason. And so based on, you know, the Administrative Procedures Act, you kind of have to do things for the reason that you initially intended to do them. And you can't sort of later put forth some reason to cover up the original intent. Is your position that that Voting Rights Act justification wasn't a post hoc rationale or that it you know, doesn't really matter so long as the government has some reason to put forth? What is your thought on that? Yeah, a couple things I think about that. Well, uh, as you know, uh, Wilbur Ross was not deposed. The Supreme Court said he didn't have to be. And I certainly would not suggest that I know what was in the minds of the secretary when he decided to do it. I think you should take him at his word if it's a legitimate reason, if it's a plausible reason, I think it makes sense to, you know, accept the arguments that he makes as to why the judge did not apparently take it seriously. He assumed, it's not clear what the evidence or anything for this is, that they had wanted to add the census question for some other reason, and then they came up with this reason after the fact. Now, that's not my understanding of the chronology, but again, I I don't claim to have any window on the man's soul, but... If you don't have any evidence that this is not the reason, then you're just essentially substituting your judgment for that of the administration's. 
And that seems like what the judge is doing here. Then I take it you would say that is a, a plausible reason that the Department of Justice put forth to ensure voting rights. The judge here and, and, and the challengers find it less credible, thinking that there are plenty of ways to enforce the Voting Rights Act. And there are other sort of surveys and, and data put out, like the American Community Survey, that enables the Department of Justice to enforce that law and has for you know the past couple of generations. But you think that that is a reasonable justification? Uh, I think on its face, it's a reasonable justification. Now, if they had some other motive, I, I'm not aware of it. But it's certainly a reasonable justification to do so. And there are other reasons as well to do it. And there's also lots of precedent, as uh, your listeners may know. Since 1820, there has been a question on citizenship for all or part of population have been asked whether they're U.S. citizens or not. It doesn't ask about legal status. It just asks whether you're a U.S. citizen. Obviously, you can be a non-citizen but still legally resident in the United States. Uh, if you want some background numbers, the current the census will probably show about 22 million, maybe 23 million non-citizens. The expectation is 10 or 11 million of those individuals will be illegal immigrants, and the rest will be primarily green card holders with maybe a million or a million and a half long-term temporary visitors, such as foreign students, guest workers. And again, to remind your listeners, a green card holder is a legal or lawful permanent resident in the United States who, after five years, may become a citizen if they choose, but they don't have to. And people live in the United States for decades without becoming citizens, just constantly renewing their green cards. That's perfectly permissible as well. And so this survey was going, or the question that they wanted to put in the census, would simply be the one that had been asked in prior censuses. It's currently asked on the American Community Survey. It's asked on the current population survey, and as well as some other data sources, about whether you're a U.S. citizen or not. Can we dig into that just a, a tiny bit more? It seems like there's a, a bit of a sort of messaging fight between the sides as to how common of a practice, including this type of question, has been in past censuses. I think you know both sides can sort of state something correctly, but it can sound different. So the challengers would say the citizenship question has not been included on a census since, I think, about 1950 or 1960, which is true to the extent that it hasn't been included in sort of the what's called the short-form census, the very bare-bones thing that's sent out to everyone. But as you say, in the longer form, that gets sent out to some folks, like a fifth or a sixth of the population. A bunch more questions are in there, including often citizenship. So, you know, but I guess it might be fair to say that folks don't really regard the long-form census as essentially, you know, what they think of when they think of what the census is, just counting up everybody and, and, and the thing that's sent to, to everyone in the country. What do you think about, you know, that? Well, yeah, it gets complicated because in 1820, for example, they only asked white people about their citizenship. So not everyone was asked. If you had indicated that you were non-white, they didn't ask about your citizenship. So certainly going back a long ways, too, not every single person was asked about their citizenship. And you're right, it's been a half century since they've asked whether everyone was a citizen. On the other hand, like, for example, the last time we asked in 2000, the long form was asked about one-sixth of the population. So if your concern is that a uh, citizenship question will create distortions that people won't respond, you'll get an undercount, well, if, you, if you're asking that large a percentage of the population about their citizenship and then they're refusing to answer and take, you know, not take the census, then that would have distorted the results as well. I don't think most people think that's what happened, that 
non-citizens or immigrants in general, that is the foreign-born, didn't take the long form. I think the evidence suggests that there were undercount problems of various populations. But overall, it's not thought that the long-form citizenship question created a, a big issue. The long form itself can create a big issue because, just as an aside, is the concept of respondent burden. You know that if you ask a whole bunch of questions about income and family structure and receipt of government programs and income and 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 so forth, people sort of say, "Oh, the heck with this! I don't want to fill this whole thing out." But the citizenship question itself it was probably not a source of a a big problem. So we so as I say one-sixth of the population, and if it had been a problem, it would have distorted previous censuses. You mentioned earlier, aside from the proper justification of enforcing the Voting Rights Act, that there are other good reasons to include citizenship question on the census. Uh, what are some of those reasons? Yeah, I mean, I look at it as a researcher. I mean, the constitutional questions surrounding voting rights are not my area of expertise. I'm a demographer, uh, someone who studies human populations. One of the biggest reasons to ask the question is, is a simple one. After each census, uh, the government tries to carefully, the census bureau carefully tries to evaluate the undercount or the people who get missed in each of the parameters or each of the variables that they collected. So, for example, uh, they collect age, sex, race, things like that, and they go back in and do this work to say, yeah, but how many people were there really? How many did we think we, we might have missed? And sometimes they find that they overcounted certain populations. Often, uh, say for traditionally younger black men have been difficult to count. And that's one of the, the reason we know that is this post-census, post-enumeration work. But they only do that for questions that are included on the census. And so by including a question about citizenship, we will now have the full resources of the Census Bureau try to answer this question of how many immigrants do we miss? What is the actual undercount of the foreign-born, outside researchers, and even the Census Bureau has thought about this question a lot, and we have some answers. Uh, if you'd like to know, the overall undercount is thought, but we're not sure, to be about 5%. The undercount specifically of illegal immigrants is thought, but again, we're not sure to be somewhere between 5 and 10%. So this might give us uh, way better answers on that question, because it would be systematic throughout the country, and a lot of resources would be devoted to it. And so... In my opinion, that's the number one reason to do it. There are other related reasons. So if you have, you, you have an actual count of the foreign-born rather than a survey that you then weigh up to what you think is the overall population, an actual count might help you understand the migration policy. I mean, the migration the dynamics of migration better. You'd be able to see how the population grows and changes over time with a full enumeration, especially at the local level, something we don't have right now. Then if I'm here, you understanding you, it sounds like you say the the data that would be returned from a census sent out with a citizenship question would be sort of more complete, more robust. It would be uh, very useful. But in reading the opinion or reading the, the ruling, it sounds like the judge disagrees and, and, the, and the challengers disagree. And I think to some extent the Census Bureau disagrees that because a lot of folks I think understandably would be deterred or discouraged from returning a piece of paper to the government, especially this government, saying they're not a citizen of this country, that the data wouldn't be that robust, it wouldn't be that complete or accurate, and that the study that goes out already, that American community survey that the long-form census got sort of folded into, that goes out to a sample of folks, 
ends up actually being more accurate than this would be? So do you disagree with that idea? Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's a lot of speculation. We know, uh, let me explain one thing to your listeners. Right now we conduct a survey every month called the Current Population Survey. It's where we get things like the unemployment rate, the poverty rate, the share of the population with health insurance coverage. It's a you know, very important data set, and it goes back many years. Uh, starting in 1994, on a regular basis, everyone is asked in that survey, not just their citizenship, but a whole series of even more intrusive questions, like when did you come to America, in what country were you born, and where were your parents born? There doesn't look to be, even with the election of Donald Trump, which some have pointed to, any drop-off in response rates to that survey every month. It's very large, over 50,000 households. And if you look specifically at the citizenship question in the CPS, which I have, it doesn't look like the Census Bureau is reporting higher rates of what they call imputation, but which means that they, the person wouldn't answer. They had to kind of fill it in for them. You know, that just, that, that just non-response. It doesn't look like that's happening. So the surveys that we have right now seem to be working, um, including in the era of Donald Trump, the much larger Americans Community Survey, which is collected throughout the year and then represents the population at the midpoint of the year, like July 1st. That survey, which is you know, millions of people, they, it is true that people sometimes refuse to answer the citizenship question, but they also refuse at about the same rate to answer the marriage question and income questions at much higher rates. It doesn't look like there's anything special about the citizenship question. It doesn't look like it's gotten any worse than any of the others. So it looks like we're able to collect this data uh, on surveys, and then what we do is the Census Bureau weights the surveys based on what they think the actual population is. Again, this would be an actual census where you actually count people, so there's a distinct difference. But th the point here is is that we seem to be able to collect it, and people are responding like they do anything else right now. So it doesn't look like there's a Trump effect and or that concern. It's conjectural, in other words. It's out there. Uh, it is clear, however, that certain individuals at the Census Bureau didn't like the idea. I think one of the things they didn't like about the question is they, they didn't like the way the, the Department of Commerce decided to do it in conjunction, I guess it was originally, in case your listeners are wondering, uh, from a request from the Department of Justice asking them if they could add this question. That's the chronology. As I understand it, again, I can't speak to anyone's motives outside of it, and it was in the context of the Voting Rights Act, and I think the Census Bureau felt they got bypassed. And there were some professionals at the Census Bureau who seemed they really didn't like the idea. And they wrote internal memos saying, look, I, I think we could do this with just administrative data if we wanted at the local level. We haven't had enough time for us to have our input and our say and our study of adding this question. We don't think it's a good idea to do. And so they strongly, within the Bureau, not everyone, I know lots of people at the Bureau, and some of them like the idea uh, sort of for the reasons I do from a research perspective, but there are clearly elements within the Census Bureau who don't like it, and they put stuff out to that effect. Uh, so it's a, it's a debate. The question is, when you have a debate like that, who should settle it? Sort of the elected branch of government, or should a judge do it? And I think, you know, people are of different opinions, but it's, it's a very fraught thing to say that the judge knows best because the one good thing about the elected branch is it's accountable. If we don't like it, we vote them out. And so, like, for example, maybe one of the reasons that Congress 
went over to the Democrats is people didn't like this question. And now the Democrats can attach riders to bills saying that you can't spend any money to collect this question. That kind of thing. It's a, it's a great way in which democracy is self-correcting. A judge, on the other hand, is very much unaccountable in a way that's not true of our elected branches. Okay, well, the, the path forward, I'll ask you one last one here. For this case, Will, um, does seem like it'll uh, be run through a, a gauntlet of more judges. Say this case gets up to the Supreme Court. How, how do you think it might play out? Do you think this question will end up being on the 2020 census? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't think anybody knows. I think, you know, the way judges rule and what we've seen, especially in the era of Trump, is that, you know, judges tend to rule as you would predict, based on who appointed them. So if it makes it to the Supreme Court with the current constellation of Supreme Court justices, I'm guessing they would rule it's constitutional, and President Trump could add the question, at least from that point of view. But it would be a 5-4 to four ruling. Right. Uh, I, and this does point to one of the challenges or issues with, again, having judges make public policy. People, political scientists who study it, say there are clearly exceptions, and judges don't always go the way you would expect but pretty much they just represent the politics that ended up putting them into that office. They're not the, shall we say, objective arbiters that we would hope for. They pretty much represent the perspective of the party they came from and the president who appointed them. Uh, Stephen Camerata, the director of research from the Center for Immigration Studies. Thanks very much for being on our podcast. I really appreciate it. Sure, sure. Thank you. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Vince Barabai. He's a real titan in the field of large-scale data collection and analysis. He is the only person to have served as director of the Census Bureau on two separate occasions. He was there in the mid-70s and then oversaw the 1980 census. He serves now as commissioner on the California Citizens Redistricting Commission. Mr. Barabba, welcome into the show. Thank you for this opportunity. Certainly in no way overstates it to say you are a preeminent expert in this area of study and data collection, survey research, market research, outside of your time heading the Census Bureau. You conducted market research for some uh, American corporate behemoths sort of back in their heyday, uh, Xerox, Eastman Kodak. You founded your own firm, the Market Insight Corporation. You served for the past 10 years or so as a commissioner on the California Citizens Redistricting Commission. Um, clearly, the, the approach you had to surveying huge groups of people, finding out things about them and, and deriving data that could be useful to folks is, is something that you, you became expert at. I'd just be curious, you know, what about that process did you figure out? Did you do so well? Did you um, understand that helped you, you know, send into some of those very rarefied posts that you held? Well, what was interesting is uh, when I got to uh, Xerox, the one thing that uh, as I talked to the people at Xerox who were already in the market research department, they had expressed a concern that their their supervisors uh, took the data but didn't really fully understand it nor appreciate it. And uh, that kind of caught my attention. And uh, so we put in place a process where we went and had each of the department's market research groups 
have meetings with their supervision who was going to get the information and ask them about what they wanted to know. And then we designed a questionnaire that was much more relevant to the issues that were on their mind and also the manner in which they wanted to receive it, which then started to affect the manner in which we conducted the research. And uh, the test of uh, the success of that is when I first had my first meeting with the general management of the corporation uh, to review the results of this survey we did of the whole market, there were like two or three questions that came up, and then I was excused. And there was no complaints. There was, there was nothing. It was about more about what they were going to do. And uh, as I was flying back on the plane from the, the meeting in Stanford, Connecticut, back to Rochester, I was with one of the senior executives, and I said, you know, I wasn't quite sure what happened. He said, well, that's because you did your homework, and everybody had a chance to read the data and to understand it, and it was data that they were interested in, so there was nothing for them to complain about. That was a really important lesson to learn, because what I found to be true was that a lot of research is conducted and presented, but not fully utilized. And one of the reasons is that those who have to eventually utilize it are not fully engaged in the collection of it. Not that they need to be technically engaged, but they have to be engaged to find out what steps are being taken to assure them that the information they'll be receiving will not only be relevant, but will be in a form that they could make, they could use. Kodak, however, we got that going, uh, and we did a major study about the future of capturing images in uh, early uh, 1981. And that study uh, made it pretty clear that in 10 years, uh, most uh, image capturing was going to be done digitally and not through silver halide, which Kodak was known for. And uh, we presented this information, and it was you know, pretty well demonstrated this was going to happen. It was well enough demonstrated that management accepted the findings. But the problem was they had a hard time accepting the fact that Kodak Park, which they all grew up in, was going to go away because all it did was made silver halide printing paper and silver halide film. And so they, they then started thinking about how could they uh, accept the information and still keep Kodak Park. And so they decided that the thing to do would be to show how digital technology could improve the use of silver halide technology. About the time that this was coming to a head in 1985, uh, it caught the attention of people at GM and they hired me. So I wasn't there uh, to follow through, but as we now know, it didn't take very long and the uh, Kodak Park no longer exists. But it was an example of a predisposition that was so strongly held that even in, in the face of solid information, they could not accept it. Sure. Kodak Park, of course, being the sort of classic industrial fiefdom in, in Rochester, New York there. Um, let's zoom into your time at the Census Bureau. You were there for two separate stints, once between 1973 and 76, and then again between 1979 and 81, when one of the decennial censuses, of course, was administered. But when you first get there, it's 1973, it's a few years past one of the decennial censuses. You have several years before the next one. I think folks in the general public tend to sort of forget the Census Bureau exists during those uh, sort of in-between intervening years. No offense, Mitt. Um, but what uh, what is the Bureau working on 
um, in, in those in-between years? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I remember at a, a congressional hearing, we were discussing the results of the 1970 census, and I was pointing out to uh, the uh, congressman some of the issues and, you know, how wrong was it? And I said, well, you know, the Census Bureau is one of the few agencies of government that not only admits that it made a mistake, but it quite precisely estimates the extent to which it did so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and what was going on at that time was to say, okay, what worked in 1970 and what didn't, and what should we be thinking about relative to 1980 so that we could do a better job? And, uh, and, and that pretty much was the primary focus, but you had a lot of political uh, activities going on about, you know, what... You know, kind of questions you could ask and whether you should or shouldn't ask certain questions, that kind of thing. But the thing that I found when I got to the Census Bureau was the quality of the people relative to their dedication to their mission was incredible. And they were they did not mind admitting they made a mistake. In fact, as I pointed out, they, 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 they publish when they make a mistake. But it was that learning that took place by making a mistake that allowed you to think about how to do things better in the future. So a, a growing sort of iterative process to figure out the best way to achieve the mission of the Bureau. Um, in terms of you know, that... And, and, and in addition to that, you also had to assume that society was going to be changing, uh, you know, every 10 years. <laughs> sure. And so that the, the world you were going to be getting into 10 years from, uh, or 8 or 9 years from now, was going to be somewhat different. In the old days, it wasn't very much different, but at that time, a lot was occurring, particularly relative to technology. So the ability to communicate and how you would communicate were starting to become issues of how you would go about doing a better census. What uh, what were some of those technical innovations back then? I, I think folks are fairly familiar now with seeing the census card arrive in, in their mailbox, but... Um, at that time, that was a fairly novel approach to, to census collection, right? The, the idea of mailing out forms for, for folks to... Well, 70 was the first time they did it, you know, all uh, across the board. They had experimented with it in previous census to make sure that it would work. But in 70, they used it, you know, for the entire population. And uh, it, it worked. And, it, you know, wasn't, I forget what the numbers were, but uh, the undercount was, uh, you know... Something like around six uh, percent, something like that, and uh, uh, so you know, when you think about how complex the taking of the census is, uh, finding ninety-four percent of the population <laughs> on any uh, over a given period of time is not a trivial task. Particularly when you think about the diversity of our population. I mean, not only do you have people who live in homes, but you have people who are homeless or who are in between jobs and things of that nature. And you got to figure out a way to capture that population. You you mentioned there could be some political considerations when it came to to questions being either added or subtracted from a from a decennial census. Um, that of course sounds a lot like the the motif of of the case here, whereas of uh, political ends being the true motivation behind the inclusion of a citizenship question here. Um, you were in the bureau under presidents from two different parties, Republican and Democrat. Do you recall ever feeling? Any pressure from you know, the more political agencies or appointees to nudge the census in one way or the other to, to maybe advance uh, more political ends aside from just the goal of, of counting everyone? Uh, 
I guess I, I would say it was not a big a big thing. I mean, it was there were you, know, you could always see somebody wanted to add a question, but you know it was it, it wasn't a lot of pressure or anything of that nature. And, and at that time, the bureau was pretty much uh, you know even though we would have you know congressional reviews and things of that nature, the questions were always more about you know could you do it cheaper and could you do it better, not whether could you do it so that I could accomplish what I want to accomplish. So in that period, it was not as, as the kind of atmosphere that we're facing today. Uh, there was one area, and that was the whole issue of the uh, under-enumeration of minority populations. And, uh, the, uh, and, and, there, and that was pretty clear that we under-enumerated the minority population to a greater extent than we did the general population. And several members of Congress... Uh, had uh, expressed a concern about that, and I think legitimately so. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, we decided we would create some advisory committees from these various populations. And I remember one of the members of the Bureau, uh, Jack Ingram, said, Vince, if you're going to get people from the black American, at that time we called the black population, onto the scene, they better be really good black people because if they're not respected in the black community, they're, they're not going to have an effect. So we decided to create this committee, and the first person we called was Bobby Seal and, uh, and of the Black Panthers. <laughs> and he said, are you kidding? <laughs> I said, no, we're really serious. So he actually came out, and we had a meeting. And, uh, and it, during the meeting, we were talking about what the advisory committee would do, and it was clear that it was not working very well. And I remember... <laughs> He said, can we, can we have a separate meeting so we could talk about this? And I said, well, no, the rules of a public meeting sponsored by the government says somebody from the government's got to be here during the entire meeting. He said, could we take a break? I said, yeah, we could take a break. He said, why don't you take your break out there? We'll take our break in here. I said, okay, that sounds fair. And uh, by the time we came back in, about an hour later, he said, well, we decided we're going to be a part of this committee. And we had a reason for doing it, because if you're not telling us the truth, we're going to be here to see it, and then we'll let you know how bad a job you did. <laughs> I said, well, that's a good start, but I think we, if we do the job right, then you'll help us get it done. And he said, yes, that's what we will. Now, he was not able to become a member of the committee, but the committee we got was really well represented. So there was an outreach with the, uh, the black community, the Hispanic community, and, and the uh, Asian American community as well. Yeah, I mean, history always seems to, to often seem somewhat cyclical. That same worry is, you know, part of the reason challengers brought the suit at issue here is that the inclusion of this particular question would uh, tend to skew their results and underrepresent um, oh, yeah. here more so the Hispanic community. In, in terms of, you know, adding or subtracting questions, I think a lot of people, or at least me personally, viewed the census questionnaire as a fairly static thing, you know, coming every 10 years and asking essentially always the same question, you know, who are you, how many people are living in your household, and maybe how old they are. Um, but as you say, questions do from one census to the next get added, subtracted. So what uh, what is the process by which that happens? Well, in, in this interim period before the census is taken, there's a, a, a significant outreach program uh, to not only different communities uh, in the general population, but to agencies of government as to what information they need to perform their function. 
And as things change in society, then those agencies indicate whether something needs to be added or is no longer relevant to perform their function. And that contributes uh, greatly to the uh, final decision of what gets uh, put on the census questionnaire. Okay. Um, could you give me perhaps an example of the sort of information that an agency might, you know, need to use, need need to know to, to do some of its uh, its business? Well, like the, the level of education, the uh, the well, the, uh, the amount of income, and, you know, th- those types of things. Uh, depending on which agency you're in, are all relevant to uh, programs that you have to decide relative to the allocation of resources uh, to address the needs of different communities. Let's dig into the case here. You filed an amicus brief with four other former census chiefs, uh, certainly, a, certainly a unique and formidable group of amici. As I read your brief, the central idea seems to be that the addition of this question will dampen the response rates and thereby make the census worse. It's um, resulting data less robust. Walk me through the, the main thesis of, of your filing. Well, the uh, just doing the census itself, even without this question, it, there's a lot of people who say, why do I have to answer this? <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. And you tell them it's constitutionally mandated and things of that nature. So that's in, in asking just general questions. Now, when you ask the citizenship question, that raises a whole dimension of what is the purpose of this information. Because, you know, the, the Constitution says it shall be a census of the inhabitants of the states. doesn't say the citizens, because at that time there weren't a lot of them. So it's always been a census of the inhabitants. So then people would say, well, why do you need to know how many citizens there are? And it raises questions of what's the purpose of that question. Now, in the case of this instance, it's pretty, you know, the evidence, I don't know if the evidence, but certainly if you follow the pattern of the elected officials, is to attempt to affect the manner in which non-citizens are enumerated and, and, and captured for purposes of apportionment and redistricting. And, uh, and, and that, when you get into that, then that raises this whole new dimension of concerns about what is the purpose of the census. And it, it starts losing its position as this thing that we do because it's in the best interest of the country. It, it does seem like there's some tension in that question, too, the purpose of the, cens- the census. Um, because sort of um, maybe the core of it is the idea that Everyone should be counted up every 10 years. Um, but then, as you say, those numbers are, are put to some practical, to a lot of practical application, in, including um, with regard to congressional apportionment and um, the dissemination of, of federal tax dollars. And it's usually at, kind of at that stage where um, folks supporting the government's position here will say, well, for those purposes, it's, it's, it, there's some arguments as to why non-citizens perhaps have less of a justification for being included. I suppose, you know, from the Bureau's perspective, is the core mission simply enumerating the, the number of people? Or do you have less in mind the subsequent sort of practical uses of, of the, the data that you, um, that you collect? Well, it, 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 is, it is primarily to count the inhabitants of the states. We don't refer to them as inhabitants anymore, but, but it's to count everyone. Now, 
you want to know about people as well, and, and that's always an important part of it, but you don't want to know about something that's going to affect, have a negative effect on how many you actually count. So, for example, a lot of people have said, well, we should find out about religion. Well, the Census Bureau has never asked a question on religion in the census, because that would cause people concern. Why do you want to know about my religion? So it's, it's those kinds of questions which raise more questions than the value of the information they provide that you've got to address. The, the group of, of former census directors, your, yourself included, I imagine that you guys you know, differ uh, in terms of political beliefs in, in a number of ways, so it seems unique that uh, you're united um, in argument to, against the, the government's move here. You know, tell me sort of why it's so important and, and what united um, you together to, to make this uh, filing. Okay, once you've been through a census and had the opportunity to observe the quality of the people who are working on it and the dedication to which they put it, you feel an obligation to ensure that that attitude and willingness to do this very important job is maintained in a very constructive way. So in this instance, all of the all of the directors have gone through that experience, and they understand not only how important it is, but why it's important that people believe they're doing the right thing in the actual conduct of the census, because they're all it's a very hard job, and you have to be dedicated to get it done well. And as long as you feel that what you're doing is going to be in the good of the country, that helps a very, very, quite a bit. So then when something like the citizenship question comes up, it has a significant negative effect on the entire Bureau. And as former directors of the Bureau, it was very easy for us to agree that we need to come together on this one and address it. I want to ask you one question about one of those practical applications of the um, derived census data. In your work on um, the California Citizens Redistricting Commission um, that draws the, the lines for both the state legislature and and um, Congress, you um, lean a lot and rely a lot on, on the, the, data, the data collected in the census, right? So you've seen it kind of from both sides, collecting it and then using it subsequently. How, you know, how, tell me a bit about that. Well, it was, it, it, uh, what was interesting, you know, because one of the good things that we were kind of fortunate about in the state of California is that over the last several decades, the, the state assembly, the legislature, has funded the statewide database, which is housed at the uh, University of California at Berkeley. And this group of very talented uh, people maintain all the census uh, statistical records in files, and uh, and then whatever there's changes, they, they update. And they create then not only the, the, the storage of it, but the display of it so they can graphically uh, illustrate where the population is and what happens when you move things around. So uh, my former, being the former director of the Census Bureau, didn't add very much <laughs> to the, uh, uh, the, the work of being on, this, on the redistricting commission because the hard part was already done by the state of California by, by making sure that this capability of not only storing the information but being able to 
display it in various formats was in place. Let me just ask one, what are your thoughts on, on this ruling? The, the court came down with a, a thorough um, decision, siding with the arguments largely that, that your group put forward and, and the challengers put forward. What, what are your thoughts on, on the judge's ruling here? Well, I thought the judge did an extremely thorough job of reviewing the issue. And, uh, and I, that's probably as complete a description of what was wrong with what was being attempted as I've seen to date. I mean, he did a better job than, than us former directors did making the argument. And, uh, and I think he was also very clear in pointing out that the motivation and the surreptitious manner in which it was done by the Secretary of Commerce including, you know, mis- misstating uh, how it all got started, uh, when in fact it did start with a request from Steve Bannon at the, at the White House, eventually leaving it, setting up a situation where it sounded like it was a request from the uh, Justice Department for the Voting Rights Act, which it sounded like something was made up after the decision was made. Now, I could tell you, as a person who had to submit the report, to the Attorney General of the United States for the California Congressional Redistricting that uh, we were able to use the American Community Survey to provide the information that demonstrated that we met all the requirements of the Voting Rights Act in creating the congressional districts we did. So the data uh, in the uh, American Community Survey is, is sufficient to do that job, and it doesn't have to be in the actual uh, 100% enumeration of the census. Uh, that American Community Survey, that's um, sort of a, a sampling? The that sampling, comes yeah. But in other words, the Census Bureau doesn't do the long form anymore. Because if you wait 10 years to find out what happened, there was a time when that might have been appropriate. But today, things are changing every minute, much less every year. So a, an annual sample uh, of, this, of the population gives you a better indication. And then you sum that up over the time, so you get a lot, enough enough people sampled that you could have information at the block group level. Right, part of that uh, Voting Rights Act justification put forward by the Department of Justice. Um, it's based on, on that need to get sort of more granular info at that voting block, finer grain level. One last one. If you envision the folks that are at your former department, the Census Bureau, you know, uh, working under uh, a fairly cloudy situation. It's 2019. The census is, you know, coming around the corner. It must be sort of a difficult spot for the bureau to be in, waiting for all the judicial processes and the wheels to turn to let them know, you know, what the final um, census is going to look like. And is there some sort of set deadline where, you know, the the the, the form is is final? Well, they have missed the traditional deadlines for testing any new question that should have been done several years ago. And uh, so now what they're going to have to do is try, if this goes through and they're required to ask that question, it's going to be done and it will not have been tested as as well as questions have been tested in the past because they're going to be short on time. And if they find things out that need to be, that they learn by asking the question, they're not going to have a lot of time to address those issues. So it, it's really the worst thing that they could possibly do is to impose this question 
in both designing this and, and implementing this question on the Census Bureau at this late date. Okay, well, we'll, we'll wait and see exactly how it turns out. But uh, Vince Baraba, former two-time head of the U.S. Census Bureau, thanks very much for being on our podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's our podcast for January 18th, 2019. Thanks one more time to all three of my great guests, Justin Levitt, Stephen Camerata, and Vince Barraba. I should also thank my production staff here, principally Nick Perez. And thank you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget a couple of things. One, CLE credit is available to listeners of the show and can be found easily enough. Just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. And also, we hope you have managed to find us in the various podcast streaming avenues through which we are now available, mainly iTunes and the podcast app. If you find us there, we hope that you'll stick around and rate or review us so other folks can find the show. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.